Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. Glad you could join me. Hope you're, well, planning or thinking about or going somewhere really great right now. If you're not, maybe you're looking at pictures from your last trip. That's what we're going to talk about today. Gary Kramer, author and a photographer, joins me. You've seen his photo credits in his byline in every magazine that you care about. Okay, that I care about. He's got a book that we want to take a deeper dive into all about all the North American upland birds. But that's not all. He'll be helping us take better photos for ourselves. And you never know, we might even get some hunting advice from a guy that knows a little bit about stealth. We'll also talk about uh, some place to go in Nebraska. We'll talk about your thoughts in the world of opening day. Some news and information that will be of value to you no matter what. Put a smile on your face or maybe find out how to save the world in one small way. That's all coming up on the Upland Nation podcast. So stick with me and uh, feel free to chime in on the Facebook pages anytime. The Upland Nation podcast is brought to you in part by Roughland Kennels, Happy Jack Dog Care Products, Huron, South Dakota's Ringneck Nation, and Dr. Tim's Natural Performance Dog Food. Before we get to Gary, what's up with you? I see you are doing a lot of planning, at least, <laughs> at least according to the Facebook page. I asked how you were anticipating opening day, and I got some great responses over there. Sally Jo Hoagland and a lot of other people. I'm surprised, frankly. I I just never quite got into the dove thing, but Sally Jo sure has with her Weimaraners and her significant other. Michael Augello had a great time grouse hunting last year. He even took his brother on his first grouse hunt. They're going to do a repeat event this year and hopefully michael you also shoot a banded grouse this season joel witt shared a great picture of his labrador on opening day last year he is ready for this fall as well going into his seventh season good luck to both of you and nick spurlock always love your photos three good looking dogs each with a retrieving bumper in its mouth right next to the water and a lovely little lady in control of all three of those versatile hunting dogs. Good job, everybody. George Cummins, I wish I could be there for the opener over there in South Dakota. When you get there, say hello to everybody out there in Mitchell for me. Thanks for sharing another picture of yet another beautiful Weimaraner. Hello, Samson, with a pheasant in his mouth. So thank you all for sharing that great stuff including the photos you know we're going to talk more about photos in a minute because you know we could all stand to do a little bit more of that but before we do keeping you up to date on how i'm doing with that new old new to me but not old to me shooting style called instinctive style or english style or churchill style it's starting to take I actually was brave enough to go out onto the Sporting Clays course uh, both days last weekend. And um, well, I cherry-picked the targets. You know, I'm not ready for the springing teal or the bounding rabbits or anything wacky like that. But I chose all the bird-like targets. 
And if you throw out the hard left to right crossers, yeah, the toughest target in the world for this guy with cross dominance, then I was shooting 90%. Yeah, I know it won't be that way once I step into the Chucker Hills, but it is encouraging. And thank you all for your good wishes on that. And also for helping me find ammo when I need it. Still trying to break 100 targets in a row. If I get close, I'll be real happy. In the news world, South Dakotans, if, or if you're visiting South Dakota, actually, and you're harvesting Canada geese, you know, they got too many, and so the limit is incredibly large, then consider donating those geese to Feeding South Dakota Food Banks and Associated Food Pantries. Pretty simple, costs you nothing, and even the processing and packaging will be taken care of by the authorized processors. If you want to learn more about all of that, go to feedtheneedsd.com. Feedtheneedsd.com. And believe me, if you shoot a lot of Canada geese, that might be a great use for some of that meat. Good luck. And uh, if you do have any, don't hesitate to pay it forward. This part of the Upland Nation podcast is brought to you by Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products. Fred Bohm and everybody over there is doing their best to create legacy gun care products from shotgun cases to clean lube protect. That's their CLP product. Cleaning and care gear. Sign up for the mailing list. So then you'll get first notice on all the new stuff, including the gun grease and, like I said, the uh, shotgun case looks like a i don't know what to call it a, a case a, you know a, a good looking piece of clothing or a fine piece of furniture either one sage and breaker.com and if you like freebies then go to hunt sd.com they're giving away three different hunt huron sd prize packages a couple nights of lodging a bunch of meals in one of the local restaurants i've been to they're all good and all you got to do is sign up for a free hunting information packet at hunthuronsd.com 140,000 of public acres of public access walk-in country within 45 minutes of town that county has more birds than people i hope to see you there that's hunthuronsd.com Yeah, so without further ado, I'm looking forward to having Gary Kramer, author and photographer, on the line with us. He's hanging out, waiting for me to give him the cue, and I'll do that in just a moment. But first, let me tell you a little bit about him. He's just back and had his passport stamped in yet another fascinating country. We'll talk about that first. Gary's from Willows, California. If you know ducks and geese, you know willows. Or if you drive up and down I-5, you know it. I do. I sure miss uh, Bill and Kathy's place over there. 
Uh, he's got over 250,000 images in his photo files. 12,000 of them are published. 1,500 articles. I mean, I could go on and on. He's won awards of all sorts. He's a contributing photographer for Sports Afield, editor-at-large for Shooting Sportsman. Hi, Ralph. And on and on and on. And I know he's probably just rolling eyes, his eyes at all of that. So I'm going to welcome you. Welcome you to the Upland Nation podcast, Gary Kramer. Well, <clears throat> glad to be here, Scott. Appreciate it very much. Um, I'm going to say bienvenidos. Welcome back uh, from Bolivia. Tell me all about that. That must have been something. Yeah, well, I just got back from, <clears throat> I did a week uh, fishing uh, for Golden Dorado, uh, fly fishing for Golden Dorado on the Secure River. It's about a two-hour flight, uh, small aircraft flight into the jungle um, from Santa Cruz, Bolivia. Spent six days fishing there. It was a, it was an epic fishing trip. Uh, caught a lot of golden dorado with the big fish being 25 pounds, which is amazing. Yeah, I bet it was. I, I don't know that I've ever seen a picture of a fish quite of a dorado that big. I've seen obviously other Amazon basin fish bigger than that, but that's incredible. So you know, the fly fisher in me wants to know what you caught it on. Well, you know, what we found is that there were actually two rivers there that we fished, the Secure River and the Agua Negra. The Secure River was had some color to it just because of the runoff, <clears throat> which it normally does. And then the, the Agua Negra, Negra is a real clear river. In, both, in, in the case of the Secure River, it was almost all dark, uh, dark, large streamers. This is all a pretty much blind cast and stripped back kind of a fishery. And then the things hit with a savage strike. It did a lot of fish from, you know, three to five. But then there's a, a class in there that starts at about 10. Then they go up to 25, at least there. And in the Clearwater River, you use, we use a, a, a streamer with a little bit of uh, a little bit of white in it or some color. But it was pretty much that type of a streamer fishery. Are, they, um, are, are those streamers imitating a bait fish that they're usually foraging on? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're the top predator in these river systems. <clears throat> real aggressive they eat small bait fish and so what you're trying to imitate is you know as you as you retrieve that back a, a, a bait fish which you know they just nail when the time is right and just fyi these are not the same dorado we're going to catch in salt water at all this is a different fish altogether isn't it yeah yeah the dorado in salt water really i mean they're called mahi mahi yeah. and <clears throat> dolphin fish in the u.s and mexico they're they're dorado this is a golden dorado which is a freshwater fish um gorgeous fish uh top predator within their river systems and you don't find them in the same rivers as peacock bass generally it's a little bit uh, cooler water not quite as tropical although we were in the jungle for six days you know uh even now um the jungle doesn't sound very attractive to me but there's some incredible stuff out there i mean what was the fun what did what did you find the most interesting part of that trip well, I think that the remoteness of it, I, I've, I've been very, very fortunate and fished, hunted, and, and photographed in 70 countries around the world. And, you know, so it's one of, I've seen a lot of stuff, but this is, it was very unique in the fact that it was, it was a tent camp in the, in the Bolivian jungle. Um, and surprisingly enough, the weather wasn't that bad. I mean, it was cool enough to sleep at night. The bugs, there was a few black flies, almost no mosquitoes. And uh, I think it was a remoteness. It's all in an Indian, uh, uh, in, uh, a native native people holding. Yeah. Uh, so, or it's very very pristine. 
we did not see any jaguars, but they do see jaguars there from time to time. Um, plenty of caiman on the river. You know, we saw a taper. We saw some cotamundi. So there's there's wildlife to be seen, a lot of bird life, and then you have the fishing, uh, and then you come back to a super comfortable camp. So you're um, did, how, did you fly the whole way, or did you have to get on a boat for the last 20 miles or anything like that? <laughs> well, it was about an hour and 45-minute or two-hour flight from Santa Cruz, Bolivia. Then you get in a dugout canoe, about a 25-foot dugout canoe with, with a mud motor type of uh, propulsion on it, and then it's a two-hour boat ride upstream to this camp. Wow. So you were in the middle of literally nowhere. They had Wi-Fi, which blew me away. But... <laughs> <laughs> that is incredible. Okay, because that's another one of my fixations. How do you get Wi-Fi way out there? Did they have a satellite phone or something? Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it was a satellite Wi-Fi, apparently. Yeah. I never really asked, but they did have Wi-Fi out there, so that was an amazing thing. That It wasn't totally reliable, but and it was a bit in and out, but it was pretty amazing to have that in this in the jungle like that okay so confess or not did you send any selfies to facebook from there i actually didn't because it was hard to send you could you could text and oh, you could do emails yeah. but it would it wouldn't take something as big as a photograph yeah and I, I i don't know that world but i think it's because you could send a text in like a microsecond and and all that other data transference takes a little bit of time Right. Well, right. cool. But so, uh, okay, we're going to, yeah, we're going to talk upland birds in a minute. Honest, everybody, please bear with me because I'm, you know, I've been invited on a trip like that four or five times and I turned them all down and now I'm regretting it from what you're telling me. It's pretty incredible. Well, but, it was. Uh, but, uh, but of all of that stuff, could you narrow it down to one photo you think is the next cover shot for you on one of the fishing magazines? Well, probably um, what I, I, I actually brought, I, I don't do a lot of it, but I started in the last three or four years to do some underwater photography. Mm -hmm. And basically in these kind of scenarios, or whether it be trout fish or whatever, you just push the camera below the water in this housing and start pushing the button and hope you get a good shot because you're, you're not, you know, looking at the finder. I, 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 know, I, I know what you mean. We've done it in video. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's pretty challenging, but I got one killer shot underwater only one out of hundreds that I took, I've already looked at them. That's, uh, you know, about a 18, 20 pound Dorado with a big old streamer in his mouth and in that clear water. I, I think it's that one. And then there were five of us on this trip, kind of a trip that I organized. And there was, you know, a bunch of us are old guys, right? But there was one guy that was a lot younger and he was a pretty good photo subject. So, uh, you know, I got him with some, some big fish that would be, you know, appropriate for a cover, I think. Oh, not, I, I love not, it. Not my, not my buddies that are a bunch of old guys, right? Well, you know, it's funny you bring that up, and I will because we both have a common, uh, a mutual friend in, in Ralph Stewart at, at Shooting Sportsman. You know, I like to pretend he likes my writing because he buys all my stuff, but, but he doesn't like my pictures because all the guys <laughs> in my pictures are my friends, and they're of a certain age. Oh, yeah. So, so I'm looking at right now, I'm looking at a cover story I wrote for him, and... Uh, it's somebody else's cover picture because the guy's 30 years younger than me. Yeah, well, that's the way it is. Is this so? When I, when one of my older buddies said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna invite this guy along," and he's 40 years old and he's you know he's an excellent fly fisherman, you know, pretty pretty good shape guy. I said, "Hey, bring him along." So I told him, I said, "Look, you got no choice. Yeah. You are gonna get photographed because you're the most photographed ph photographic guy. These other guys I've known for 40 years, and you know they're all 
you know, <laughs> they've been in a lot of photos yeah. and a lot of magazines, but it's a little tougher these days. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's almost funny sometimes, but we won't talk about that. That's right. Gary Kramer. He's an author and a photographer. You've seen his stuff in the Ducks Unlimited magazine, Grace Sporting Journal, you name it. Lots of awards from the Outdoor Writers Association of America and the National Wildlife Magazine Photo Contest. Let's talk about the book. Um, it's It's got to be, um, well, I bet you were really relieved when that book was done. It, by the way, everybody, it's called Game Birds, A Celebration of North American Upland Birds. And just from the title, you know, you might surmise that there's a lot that went into this thing. Tell me all about that, Gary. Well, you know, it was a project that I, I find that, you know, I've been doing this magazine and photography stuff like you have for, you know, 40 years, and I've been doing it on a very regular basis. Previously, I worked for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for 26 years as a waterfowl biologist and refuge manager, and I did the writing and photography as a part-time deal. It's been, you know, almost 20 years now that I've been retired, and I got it early out from the service, and I've been doing this full-time. But I, I, I find that I, when I have a real dedicated project, I, I can become extremely focused and I always get it done and I actually like that. So what I, just, what I started to do that over the years, especially you know, writing for Shooting Sportsman and being involved with Pheasants Forever and, and, and a lot of the magazines that you are, Scott, you know, I, I found that there's been, I found that, that I didn't think there was ever a book written and certainly photographed by a single individual that included all 34 species of upland game birds. I can't say in North America, because if I would have added the birds in Mexico, there's another 15 off the wall, trachalacas and guans and, and, and really odd birds that are considered gallinaceous birds. And I restricted it to gallinaceous birds. I didn't include dove and pigeon. These are the chicken-like birds. So as I <clears throat> looked around, I go, it's never been done. Yeah. So I said, well, okay, my goal is to photograph them all and then produce a book that has a narrative that talks about their biology, <clears throat> talks about, uh, you know, the way, their, their appearance. It talks about their range, where they're found, and so on and so forth. So I embarked upon this. I already had the majority of them, but certainly not enough for a book. So it became a three-year project, which I traveled all over Canada and the United States and uh and mexico and photographed all 34 species and to to my knowledge to this day there's been nobody that's in, that's photographed them all nor has there been there may have been books about it but nobody's ever photographed them all and the 34 include 13 introduced species in hawaii yeah a lot of people a lot of people have no clue that there's 13 species of introduced game birds in the islands of hawaii Unfortunately, they don't. They haven't introduced chachalacas yet. I just had to work. Right. I had to work that in somewhere. I just love that word. But yeah, right. uh, but do they have some? In fact, it's it's fascinating. The first time I was over there, I think it was on Maui. I'm driving down the road, and across the road walks a uh, gray Franklin. I think it was, and that's right. that's just one. What are some of the other odd ones over there? Well, Hawaii has a whole a litany of, of species. Most of them were introduced uh, in the 60s by the Hawaii uh, uh, Wildlife Department, you know, for, for hunting. Mm -hmm. Some of them were, were introduced prior to that for ornamental purposes, and then 
some of them like the, you know, on the island of one of the 13 is a red jungle fowl, which is really the, the, the predecessor to every domestic chicken in the world found in the wild in, in Asia. And they were probably, they were there before Captain Cook. And they actually, supposedly, while the, while the population has some genetic uh, inbreeding with, with domestic chickens in some places, on the island of Kauai, there are a couple of places where you have wild jungle fowl. Well, uh, I mean, their distant cousins are everywhere over there. You've got to dodge them on the road all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But there's two places in, on the island where they, they figure that the genetic stock is relatively pure of the original red jungle fowl. You'll get a kick yeah. out of this because you've, you've been there and done that. So we're up on that high, uh, the volcano. I think it's Mauna Kea or it might be Mauna Lea. Whichever one it is, you can drive to the top of. We're sitting there shivering at the top, waiting for sunrise. And I look down, there's some there's some movement at my feet. And out of the crater of the freaking volcano waddles a chucker. Yeah. Well, on Maui, <coughs> Mauna, Kea, Mauna Kea, where the volcano is, if you go to that, where people go for the sunrise, and I've done it just like you, you're standing there, it's, you know, cold as can be you just left the beach where in your shores but you're gonna be <laughs> jacket. i mean i've actually had a you know i've been there in the winter time to where a whole covey of trucker walks up you know 20 30 birds and they just walk along and i've actually photographed them there yeah so it's pretty I mean, amazing they don't get the the predators for those game birds in most cases are probably the mongoose now that i think about it yeah true that's very true um, there, there are places to hunt them, the Parker Ranch and some of the public ground and things like that, but that's about it. Um, so Gary, of all of the species, all 34 that you chased after and took pictures of, what was the hardest one to get a good photo of? Well, that is the easiest question you could have ever asked me. Well, that's because, my job is to make you look smart, yeah. young, <laughs> yeah. and tall. Yeah, well, the, the thing is, and you're doing a good job at it. Of the 34, minus the 13 in Hawaii, you have a whole large group, you know, prairie chickens, all the grouse, pheasants, <clears throat> partridge, uh, quail, et cetera, et cetera. But there is one bird that has a hunting season on it, found in Nevada only, and it's a Himalayan, <laughs> yeah, <it's> a Himalayan <laughs> snowcock. I should have guessed that one. You'd think being cl so close to it, but uh, but I'm not crazy enough to go after those snowcocks. Well, tell tell us a little bit about that one. <laughs> that assignment okay, must have well, been something that, else. That's a, bird, uh, that's a bird that was introduced um, as late as the early 80s. It started before that, I believe, in the 60s. And it was a combination of birds that were trapped in, <clears throat> in the Himalayas and then farm-raised uh, birds. And they released them in the Ruby Mountains of Nevada, uh, and one of their mountain range nearby, and eventually they took hold. They are next to a, a, a wild turkey. They're the second largest game bird in in, uh, in Canada, the U.S., or even in North America. Yeah. Uh, they look like a giant trucker that's gray in color, and they live from about maybe 9,000 feet in the winter to the top of the Ruby Dome, which I think is pushing 12,000 feet. They're a high elevation species. They are not found in very high densities at all, fairly low densities, even in, in, in the rubies or anywhere else. And there is a season on them. You can hunt them. And I think the limit's one and the season's about, I don't know, a couple months long. The average, this will give you an idea of how tough this is. The bag in the last 30 years has ranged from eight to 28 birds annually. Wow. So, I mean, this thing is like, 
it's nuts to try to hunt. Well, try to photograph them with a 600 millimeter lens, which is which you got to pack in order to get the photos, which I finally did get. It took me three trips to the rubies. Wow. And two of them were helicopter trips. And one of them was a, a horse packing trip. The first one, make a long story short, um, I rented a helicopter, flew around the rubies with a buddy of mine, uh, Alan Sands, who was a former upland game bird biologist for the BLM. And, uh, and I went to grad school with him. And he and I flying around. And I said, the first snowcock we see, I want you to land this, this, this chopper on the nearest flat ground. And that's where we're going to camp. And then we'll pursue these birds, you know. And I had a 600 millimeter lens and all the stuff that goes with it. Tripod, yada, yada, yada. Food, the whole bit, shelter. We, land, we found a pair, landed. But it was way further from the birds. You know, you can cover a lot of ground in a helicopter in, a, in seconds. And it ended up being probably a mile hike, almost straight uphill to get to the birds. And I did this, you know, a oh. few years ago. So we hiked up to the birds, actually saw them. It was in the springtime when they were calling, and I had an electronic call. They will answer a call, but they won't come to it. You know, birds like a forest grouse, like a, um, you know, a city grouse or what used to be a blue grouse or ptarmigan will come right to a call mm-hmm. and so, mm-hmm. and, in the spring, and so will some species of quail. But these guys will answer it, so they let you know where they're at, but they won't come to it. So we found them and said, okay, but they were way too far to photograph way too far to approach so we said what we'll do the next morning is get up at four o'clock and hike in the dark to where we saw them and then just you know stake ourselves out you know make a make a blind and then hope that they show up and if maybe try to get close to them well that night at about 4 a.m i woke up looked outside and there was a foot of snow on the ground ah yes and this was in april this was in april so we got up at sunrise and looked at it by then there's two feet of snow. And we said, you know, this is so dangerous for us to try to hike one mile uphill to where these birds are with this snow. And the visibility was almost zero with the fog. So then we actually, surprisingly enough, we had direct connection with a cell phone to Elko. That's where we flew from Elko, Nevada. Mm -hmm. And I called the chopper and said, Hey, you know, we can't do this. He says, well, I can't come get you either because it's zero, zero visibility. I mean, you either stay there till the weather clears or you hike out. So needless to say, we hiked out to the road, which was about a four-hour trek in the snow, and, you know, aborted that whole mission. It ended up calling. The guy came to get us. We stayed in Elko for a couple days, and they went in, flew in later, and got all our gear. That trip produced zero photos, not one. The next trip was the following August. Same buddy of mine, Alan, and I rented, rented horses in Elko. And we had the packer take us to the highest point in the Ruby Mountains that the, that the horses could get when we made a base camp there. We spent five days in the Rubies every day, about a thousand foot vertical hike from the base camp to where the birds were. We saw them every day. But the fact is that we couldn't get close to them because you can't just run up on them like with a shotgun and, you know, do a snapshot when you have a 600 millimeter lens and a tripod. <laughs> it, it doesn't work. I mean, every day when I got back to camp, we used trekking poles and each of us had a backpack, tried to carry enough water and, you know, a little bit of food and back to our base camp. Every day I got back to base camp, I said, I'm glad I didn't get hurt. Did that for five days. The last day we found a spring where it looked like they were using to set on that spring virtually the whole day. And one bird showed up 
way too far for a photo, at least the way I like them. That trip produced one photograph for five days. Okay, I'm getting close to finishing the book. I got a little bit of time. I got now fast forward to the next April. Rid another helicopter, same guy, and said, okay, this time. But in the meantime, I had met a couple local guys that knew where these birds were. They were just hikers and, and outdoorsmen and, and loved the rubies. They lived in Elko. And they said, we, we can tell you where the birds are going to be. So this guy hiked in on snowshoes in April. I mean, the guy's like an Iron Man. And we flew in. He met us. We had to offload our gear while the, while the chopper was still going because it was too steep to land. And we snow camped, cut a hole in the side of the mountain and snow camped for six days. And I'll just end the story. In six days, we saw birds every day. And it wasn't until the second to the last day that I had two birds come within camera range. And I finally got the shots after 13, 14 days on that mountain. I'm, I'm tired just hearing it. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm tired too. It's like, I, I, I look back on it, you know, this was about five years ago. I mean, it's like, God, could I do that today, you know? Well, you could, but you're not crazy enough anymore. You got some... Yeah, but it was the last one I had to do, and there was, wow. no, there was no turning back. I mean, I would have done anything to get them. Oh, I bet. And we finally got the shots. I, I know how it is. I know the obsession to finishing a book, but I, I, I haven't been that crazy about it. And I have yet to read a helicopter for any of my books. That's yeah, well, I spent more money. I spent more money in, in travel expenses. If you throw in the helicopter, getting photos of the Himalayan snowcock, then probably the whole book could put together because, you know, the hourly time on a helicopter. Oh, God. Is a whole lot different than driving your 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 SUV across the U.S. Hell, you could have flown to the Himalayas to get a picture for that price. I um, even considered that. I considered that. Yeah, uh, that's Gary Kramer. He's an author and a photographer and a wood. I was going to say woodcock. That would be easy, wouldn't it? A Himalayan snowcock shooter, such as it is. I'm Scott Linden. You're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. Gary's book is called Game Birds, a Celebration of North American Bird, North American Upland Birds. That's why he did all that. But we're just getting warmed up around here. Plus, we have public access feature and some more news for you. It's all coming up right after this break. Gary, you relax after that arduous photo shoot times three and i'll make a couple bucks to pay for the telephone bill right now starting with our good friends manning and joe exum at happy jack incorporated that's happyjackinc.com this is in fact i'm i'm starting to work on an article on wound management so it's a good time to talk about that as we get ready for the season and all the things that will affect our dog from barbed wire to thorns of various, the, the wild rose in particular in our country, they've got all sorts of products for that, from seal and heel to pad coat for your dog's feet, a little bit of skin balm and some other things out there. The seal and heel is starting to really, really grow on me, not literally, because you can put that on minor cuts and scrapes and it'll basically perform as a bandage over your dog's cut or scrape. And it dries and it has a bitter taste, so the dog's not going to lick it off. You might even be able to get away without using the cone of shame on your dog. Learn more at happyjackinc.com. And if you're taking care of your dog, there's no better way than to transport him or her, or they, depending on how they elect to describe themselves on Facebook. You could do no better than Roughland Kennels. 
That's R-U-F-F-LandKennels.com. Your dog knows how to say it, RuffLandKennels.com. Doug and Elisa and everybody over there is working hard to fill your orders. They've had an incredible demand since they joined us here at the Upland Nation podcast. So be patient. Put in your order. You can get various colors for your kennels. You can get your doors configured in various ways from one on the front and one on the back to one on the front to one on the side. All the doors open either way, either for cleaning or to to just make it fit within the configuration of your rig. I can't speak more highly about a kennel than I can about Roughland Kennels. They've been with me off and on since the day they opened their doors, and I am grateful to them. And so is Flick, because he is riding in safety. Okay, with that in mind, let's bring back the main attraction here. That would be Gary Kramer, the author of the book, Game Birds, a celebration of North American upland birds. You know, my feet are recovered from that last Himalayan snowcock hunt, Gary, because it, it, except for the altitude, it's a lot like most of the chucker country out there that I know and love so well, but I've never been crazy enough to do a snowcock hunt. What about some of the other less common species that you had to chase after? I mean, we can, hell, like, I could have took a hundred pictures this morning in the yard of the valley quail that were driving flick nuts, but what is what about some of those other birds we don't really know and love as much as we could? Well, you know what 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 the the deal was on this is that I picked gallinaceous birds and that's the chicken-like birds and they all really are found in one group. But the oddball of the bunch, which you mentioned already, is Tachalaka, and that is. Actually, there is a season on them in Texas, in South Texas. It's a it's a it's a game bird. Uh, officially, it's in a different group within the game birds, and it has a kind of looks like a cross between a roadrunner and a pheasant. It's a brown bird. It's the only game bird that actually nests in trees or arboreal, and they jump around in trees, but they also feed on the ground. And there's a season for them. So they they were very unique. And I had to go to South Texas in order to photograph those guys. And where I photographed them was there's a number of ranches in South Texas that have that have developed this pay-as-you-go uh, photography situation to where you gain access on a ranch, you pay them a fee for the day, and they've set up mostly sunken blinds, so you're shooting right at, 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 uh, at ground or water level. They usually have some kind of water feature, and they'll put out feed. And then whether it be scale quail or whether it be gambles quail, <coughs> quail if you go west, or whether it be Bob White or Chachalaca, then you have a great opportunity. And that's actually how I got them. Plus, there are some fairly cooperative birds at Santa Ana National Wildlife Refuge in way south Texas, and I was able to photograph them there too. Well, you, so you, that's the off-the-wall one. Oh, I'll say, yeah. And and even if you never shoot one, just saying that word, I mean, it makes you want to get up. and. I was at a quinceanera Saturday night, so we were dancing the Chachalaca, I think. There, there you go. Um, but... Um, you mentioned blinds and that sort of thing. And, and like a lot of wildlife photographers, there's a lot of trade secrets and we're not supposed to know about some of them or you'll have to kill me afterwards. But some of the others are really built around stealth. And stealth is one thing a lot of upland hunters really don't focus on very often. What else do you do in that world to uh, to ensure that you can get close, close enough for a good shot with a camera or, or a shotgun for that matter? 
Well, I think that, you know, mo most of the photos, I mean, it, from a photography standpoint, I mean, virtually most of these pictures were taken with a 600 millimeter, but not all of them. Actually, sometimes you can get closer. And I would say that from a pure photography standpoint, <clears throat> the three ways that you actually get them, I mean, I, I've looked back over all these years, is that surprisingly enough, you can get some very good pictures from the window of a car. Yeah. And some of the best pheasant shots I've ever got have been that way. Also, um, <clears throat> for instance, the best trucker shots, the ones in the book, virtually were all taken at Antelope Island State Park in Utah from the window of my car because there's a group of truckers on that island that are pretty habituated to vehicles. And in the springtime when they're up on a rock calling, you can literally drive by. If you get out, then it's all over with. But if you stay in the car and use it as your mobile blind, then, you know, that seems to work very well. So I've got excellent trucker, excellent California quail, excellent pheasant, and so on from the window of a car. So that's something to always consider. Yeah. Uh, and that's generally at places you, you, you almost virtually have to go to a national wildlife refuge, a state park, a state wildlife area, some area where the, where the critters are habituated to the vehicle. And then you can you can pull it off. Good point. So yeah. That's one really good method. I would say the next method uh, beyond that is using blinds or, you know, some kind of a, 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 a barrier between you and the critter. For instance, photographing sage grouse, and there's two two full species of sage grouse, and that's the Gunnison sage grouse is another one of those tough ones. I got a story on that if you want to hear it. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, it, it, that is to set up a blind, and all the birds that go to the lek, which are the dancing grounds for these birds, it'd be the two the two species of sage grouse, sharp-tailed grouse, and then the two species of prairie chickens, lesser and greater, all in the springtime go to leks, do their dance to attract the females. And virtually all those pictures that you see have been taken at those leks where you're going in the dark, got to be there in the black, black dark um, so you don't scare them off. And then when the, you know, then the birds are there, they're also in the dark, you know, just before sunrise. And then the sun comes up and you hope that an eagle doesn't fly by or a coyote doesn't run through and scare them off. And then you can get your photos from, from a blind. I love so it. I, yeah. Lots of that, lots of that kind of stuff spent hours and hours and, you know, and they, and the sage grouse, for instance, start doing the dance in March and in the, you know, sometimes six, 7,000 feet. I mean, I photographed Gunnison sage grouse in Colorado when it was 10 below. Yeah. So, so therefore, you know, it, because of the elevation and the time of year. Okay. So, so that's a good way to do it. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to, uh, through the miracle of podcasting, hold on. We're already in the fall. And we're not up at 4 a.m. We're hunting whatever the bird is somewhere out there with our buddies and our dogs. And somebody actually shoots something. And now we've got our cell phone out. And that's what we're going to try and take a picture with. How are you going to help us make a better picture with that cell phone? Well, I, I would say that the thing that the first thing to do, you know, what I find is that hopefully you shoot more than one because yeah. what you want to do to begin with is if you're going to take the time to photograph it, it doesn't need to be shot up and bloody. I mean, let's just face the fact you want something that is pristine. Maybe it's like one that you, that fell out of the sky and you were surprised, right? Or the, or, or my, my, my classic one pellet kill. Well, one pellet kill, you know, something that the dog hasn't, that, that's been pretty gentle with and brought back. And then you want to, you know, you know, smooth down all the feathers and, and a real cool setup shot is to get your shotgun, especially if it's a double, break it open, put a couple of shells next to it, 
get the bird on a rock or in something that's natural habitat and you can take some shots. And then if you want to do the same thing and put your dog in it, kind of the same deal. You need to have a subject, i.e. the bird and your dog that just didn't run through the mud and uh, set that up. And then if you're doing it with your buddy, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, trying to, it's not the, anymore, it's not the grip and grin. You don't be hanging the birds by the neck and have 10 of them in your hand. And, you know, you try to do something that's a bit more aesthetic. And I think those of us in the business of, uh, of photography have tried to portray that a little bit more. Um, you know, it's particularly with big game, it's even more important, but certainly with birds, it has kind of the same thing. So, and the other thing is to, is to get close, you know, it, it, people really like those close shots. Cell phones are amazing these days and what they can do with depth of field and color and everything. So it's just a matter and then do a, take lots of photos. I mean, you know, the, the, what they used to tell, I'm sure Scott and I both back in the day when it was slides is mm -hmm. the only difference between a professional photographer and, a, and an amateur was the size of your trash can. <laughs> because, I mean, the thing is, an amateur won't throw stuff away. But if you're a professional, like we do this for a living, I used to go on a trip to Africa, shoot 100 rolls, and I would throw literally about 85% of them in the trash. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, you I have to be your own best critic. I, I remember the days when I was in the newspaper business and, and the editors would all say the same thing. Film is cheap compared to going back and reshooting the whole thing. So what you want you want to you wanna actually keep squeezing it off. Now it's even cheaper because there is no film. So take a bunch and then like you said, weed out the bad ones and use the good ones. How about angle? You know, I in video on TV, Lynn Berland is the hardest working cameraman in the business. His knees, his belly, his chest are always muddy and dirty because he's down there at dog and bird level half the time on my show. Do you do much of that? You, you mentioned ground blinds, for example. I mean, how, how, how important are things like where the camera is in relation to the critters? Well, I, I'll tell you. The thing is, is that if, if you, in the back of the Game Birds book, if you look at, there's a photographer's note section. And if you look at the photos in the back, you're going to see a whole bunch of me laying in the snow, uh, laying, you know, in the grass. Because the thing is, is that the, the low angle when you're doing live bird shots in particular, um, it, it gives a totally different perspective. In fact, I have got to the point that I will not shoot from my tripod on, on a game bird or waterfowl with the tripod extended all the way up. Yeah. It's always going to be either I'm laying on the ground with a beanbag or the tripod is elevated slightly. I mean, the book that I just finished another another uh, big book project um, on waterfowl of the world, and if there's a there's 1,300 photographs in this book, and I would be willing to say, and it's all you know, it's not a hunting book; it's all natural history about the bird. I would say that 85% of those were taken at water level or yeah. ground level. You're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. Um, sorry for those funny noises out there. I'm going to blame it on the, the phone line in Willows, California. That's Gary Kramer. That's where we're talking to him from. He's an author and a photographer. Incredible book. Again, it's called Game Birds, a Celebration of North American Upland Birds. Gary, uh, all this talk about setting up shots, uh, when you're in a blind and you got a tripod and you're working on birds that are um, in their natural element and unharassed by my dog or my friends, it's one thing. But the other thing, and a lot of what you're talking about, especially the level of the camera, holds true for every dog picture we take as well. You got any more advice for taking better dog pictures? 
Uh, I think that that's that's also just as you said, you know, the ground level shot. I mean, I, I like like you like your camera guy. I spend so much time on my knees or laying down when I'm when I'm doing dog shots to try to get a little bit of sky in it or habitat. You know, try to show the habitat the birds. And also the other thing is that at least with the cameras that we use, not a cell phone in particular, uh, you can set the f-stop to a point where you get some depth of field. And that always helps a little bit with the dogs because sometimes, you know, if you take a picture of the dog's eyes, their nose might be out of focus if they're looking straight at you. So if you shoot with a little bit of uh, depth of field based on your, your f-stop, uh, which is like, it varies, but like f8 or f11, you can do that. So uh, dog, and the other thing with dog photography is, is that the one thing that I found, which is the hardest thing to do, is if you start looking at published photos, particularly cover shots, you never see a dog, whether it be a pointer or whether it be a lab or whatever, with its ears flat against its head. So you have to, you know, somehow the best shots are always where the dog's ears perked up. And of course, you know, in the business, what you do sometimes when you have a dog posing for you, you might throw a bird up in the air or, you know, a dummy or something so that that dog perked his ears up. But if you start looking at photos, the real killer shots are the ones where the dog's ears are perked up. So that's something just to look for. That and is- then. That is worth its weight in gold, everybody. Yeah, if you can do that, that's how you get your cover shots. But if the dog's, you know, look like he's been beat down a little bit with kind of with the sad eyes. But what you want is that real bright look in the eyes, the ears up, and you don't want their tongue hanging out like a red razor strap either if you want to get the shot. (laughs) Oh, my. Uh, This is enlightening, to say the least. I I did mean to include a little bit of a pun in that um you you know on top of all of this stuff and you know one works for the other and vice versa you're also a hunter so and and i'm i'm gonna guess your last fish and wildlife assignment was down there in the north central valley too which is why you might be in willows um but what about the hunting side of things yeah what have you learned taking pictures that that you uh you apply to your bird hunting or vice versa well, I think, you know, I was a hunter long before I was ever a photographer, yeah, you know, yeah. like a lot of us. That's, and that was my interest prior to you know, even working for the Fish and Wildlife Service is that, you know, I had a great interest in, in upland bird and waterfowl hunting. I, I don't do a lot of big game hunting, although I've done some over the years. But really, my passion's always been waterfowl and then and upland game birds. And I think, you know, I, I was born and raised in L.A., so I had to do an awful lot of driving to get out to the desert to shoot a quail or a dove. And I think a lot of it for me that I've learned is just persistence. I think you got to stick with it. I think you have to learn. I was very fortunate that I chose a career that where I learned about, you know, habitat and what to look for. I mean, years and years ago, me and two of my buddies uh, read about uh, Marin's quail in Arizona, right? We were, we were grad students and we said, you know, over Christmas vacation, we're going to take this giant road trip and try to shoot a Marin's quail. But we had read up on it enough to know a little bit about them, which, which really made sense. And we got up there in the mountains in Arizona, that rolling grassland, oak savanna country. And we found these little scratches on the ground where it looked like something had been scratching in the grass. Well, what that was is that, that mare's quail feed primarily on roots and tubers. They're not much of a seed eater. Mm-hmm. And what, what we found was is the places where they had been feeding which then keyed us into the fact that, okay, at least we're in the right habitat. There's birds here. And lo and behold, you know, within the next 15 minutes, we come on a covey. And you know how hard, how, how well marins hold. I mean, for a dog or a person, you almost got to step on them. Yeah. 
and then they explode and they're i think they're the most beautiful quail of the bunch myself so if you learn to read a little bit of habitat it's kind of like sage grouse hunting you come across some droppings of sage grouse you can identify that there's a little bit to, to say that if you can if you can learn a little of the biology of the creature that you're after you're going to do way better whether it be photography or hunting and i think that that's what has been you know, at least hopefully I've had some success doing that. And luckily we don't have to write a dissertation for the committee after all of that. You did. Um, and just by the way, what part of LA? Say, say that again. We, we what, broke up a little. What part of LA are you from? I was born and raised uh, in LA, right near the LA airport. Oh my. So the Inglewood country out there. I was in the San yeah, Fernando exactly. Valley. We, we actually had Valley quail in our Valley, but you couldn't shoot at them or people would think you were trying to start the next riot. But, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I went to Westchester high school right near LAX. My dad was an LA city fireman. Okay. And he worked, he worked, he worked at the airport. So we lived there for years, but you know, when I was 20, I went in, I'm of the age that it was either join us or get drafted for Vietnam. And I ended up joining the Navy. So I really, haven't lived in LA for many many years I got out of the service went to Humboldt State I uh, got a bachelor's and master's and I really have not lived in LA smart since move. and I've lived in pretty small communities since well tell me a little bit let's get back to the bird, bird book one more time because I, I I'm just curious um what what has been the most gratifying part of putting a book like that together well I, I think the main thing is is that it's setting a goal that somebody has never done and for me personally, it was the fact is that, okay, I did the research. There's been some wonderful books on upland game birds, but to get them all, and it was the persistence and, and, you know, the Himalayan snowcock was the finale of the whole thing. But, you know, lesser prairie chickens were not super easy because, and you can't hunt them anymore. Gunnison sage grouse was quite difficult. Um, and it was just, I think, well, at least that book, it was a completion of, of that goal. And it's a photo-driven book. I mean, there's there's text in it for sure, but you know, I'm a photographer first and a writer second. I can do both like you can, Scott. But really, my passion is the photography. And what I hope shows through in that book is that is that passion and love for photography with a text that, in fact, the test, text is completely peer-reviewed. I mean, I had an expert in every field for every species review every chapter. So not only is it photo-driven and what I hope is one of my better works, it really is a scientific publication as well. So I think to pull that off is kind of my greatest, uh, you know, my greatest pleasure in this particular book. Oh, I, I can't agree more. I, I think you, you really set the bar high, Gary Kramer, and you did a great job. The name of the book, again, Game Birds, A Celebration of North American Upland Birds. Gary, if they want to buy it, and they all should, because I will give the test following it, uh, where's the best place for them to buy that book? Well, the best way to do it is go to my website, which is Gary Kramer, G-A-R-Y-K-R-A-M-E-R dot -E net. And it's on, you, know, you can get it with PayPal or whatever. The, the price of $65 included shipping anywhere in the U.S. And the best thing to do is go to my website and, and, and uh, order it off my website. All the website books, I mean, you can get it on Amazon too, but I get hosed with with Amazon in the price. Tell me about it. Time, you know what that's like. But with, if you buy it off the website, then you get, and I'll sign it for, I'll, each one signed, um, and you'll get a signed book uh, sent to you. Usually, you know, I send it media mail. It usually gets there in less than a week. 
Excellent. Well, it is a it, it is the kind of book that you'll want to leave out for everybody to admire. It, you know, in a lot of ways, it is also a great way to introduce hunting to people who don't get it because the, yeah, absolutely. the photos are incredible. And then you say, yeah, that's what we pursue. And that's one of the reasons we go there is for that stuff. So um, it, it, it's got a lot of uses. Game Birds, a celebration of North American upland birds. That's Gary Kramer. Gary, thanks so much for being a part of the Upland Nation podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. And uh, one of the things I will mention about the book is that even though it's a natural history title photo driven in the uh, conservation section, I do mention every single state where it is legal to hunt the particular game bird wow. that I'm talking about, including Hawaii. So there's, uh, you learn something about the bird, which maybe can help you on your hunt, maybe help you in photography, and then you can find out a little bit more about it, look at some good pictures, hopefully. See, one more thing right there. And, and as Gary said, his, his writing is checked by the experts, unlike somebody else in this conversation, who makes up most of it as he's going along. So, Gary, good luck. Can't wait to see the next project coming from your pen and camera. Looking forward to that. Thanks again for being on the podcast. All right. My pleasure, Scott. Really, really a great pleasure to have this, uh, to be on the podcast today. Thanks a bunch. Yeah, don't go away. We still got a lot more to talk about. We got some news news especially about, say, you know, who's going to be cluttering up your favorite field. We got a public access feature. We'll talk a little bit about that. And uh, a few other things I think we'll be able to fit in if the time allows, starting with something from our good friends at the National Shooting Sports Foundation, my strategic partners, such as it is. It's a good news, bad news thing. You know, the lockdown resulted in a surge in hunter participation. You know that. I know that. But interestingly, not as big a surge as you might think. And by that, I mean most of the guns and most of the ammo that we can't find anymore uh, were going to personal defense shooting. Yeah, license sales were up 5% in 2020 over 2019, but most of the new first-time shooters gun owners and there were eight million of them last year they're mainly buying semi-auto handguns in fact if you go all the way down the list muzzle loaders are at the bottom of that list traditional rifles coming in second to last shotguns in the middle there fascinating and maybe just a little bit encouraging for this season uh, hopefully we aren't going to be jockeying for position at the next wildlife area parking area such as it is this part of the upland nation podcast brought to you by dr tim's natural performance dog food i want to emphasize the natural part because there's so much stuff out there that is going into some brands of dog food that is not good for them whether it's artificial color, artificial uh, flavor, some kinds of preservatives that are actually used in antifreeze and pesticide. I mean, it's scary out there. You want to learn more about what's in your dog food. I'll tell you where to start. Go to drtims.com and take a look at the ingredient lists for all of Dr. Tim's formulations and then learn where all those ingredients came from and why they're in each formulation. Free delivery if you want to try it. 
you'll get a 30% discount on your first order. Just use the code UPLANDNATION at D-R-T-I-M-S dot com. This land is your land. And I was reminded recently of a trip I took with my stellar television crew to Oklahoma. Thank you, Jim, for hosting us while we were there. We were in kind of southwest Oklahoma, but uh, you know, one of the other places that I took a long look at while I was out there and hunted for fun was the northwest corner of the state, especially if you're looking to hunt public land. There are a number of wildlife management areas in northwestern Oklahoma that have quail possibilities, from the Cimarron Hills to the Cooper, Beaver River, Pack Saddle, and Optima wildlife management areas. And in Oklahoma, their walk-in program, which is called Oklahoma Land Access Program, OLAP, it's almost as fun to say as Chachalaca, but anyway, their brand new, well, relatively brand new program has a lot of smaller parcels in that area too. So get on the website, learn all about that. Check it out. Northwestern Oklahoma, a far cry from where we made our last couple episodes in Oklahoma, but also worth a look because not too many people are doing that quite yet. And that little feature was brought to you by my own authority bird hunting site it's called findbirdhuntingspots.com new material every week except this week when i'm reprising a very popular video and article that will probably be of value to you right about this time of year what's in my vest check it out i've updated it so you can find it real easily just go on the website and and go on the gear and gadgets section you'll find it right there Thank you so much. First off to Gary Kramer, his book again, just for the record, Game Birds, A Celebration of North American Upland Birds. Get it at GaryKramer.net. And he assures me he will sign every one of those. Thank you for listening. Do me a favor, tell one of your friends to listen to the Upland Nation podcast anywhere they get their podcasts. And if you will, please leave a review at Apple Podcasts. really helps a lot. Thank you to all my sponsors who make this all possible. They provide the time and the resources for me to do this for you. I hope you learned something. If nothing else, here's a good one for you to use at your next cocktail party. Sue Murphy said it best. Did you ever walk into a room and forget why you walked in? I think that's how dogs spend their entire lives. I'm Scott Linden, your host. Thanks so much for listening to the Upland Nation podcast. See you in the field real soon.